Deep into the season of fall and winter garden preparation and care, headed into the season of festive gathering, often in communal spaces decked out for the season, I'm so pleased to be joined today by three members of the horticultural team at Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. Filoli is just such a public place, with a garden and horticultural staff striving to meet the social and environmental moment in the best ways possible, ever-evolving, to experiment, include, adapt, reinterpret, and contribute more and more positively. Why do these spaces matter, and what do they have to teach us? Jim Salyards is the director of the garden at Filoli, Kate Nowell is the production gardens manager, and Haley O'Connor is the formal gardens manager. The three are with us to speak and share more on just these topics. Jim, Kate, and Haley, welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. I would love to have each of you start with a kind of distilled version of what your organizing principle or mission is with your own personal relationship to plants or gardens, not the garden of Filoli's mission, but your hopes for your relationship to plants or gardens. And let's go ahead and start with you, Jim. I think the thing that I strive to do uh, with my relationship with plants and horticulture is to help people to connect with with gardens, with a plant, um, with the people in horticulture and, and people who work in gardens and have a connection to plants, because I think that they're some of the best humans on the planet. Um, they are kind and caring and generous people. So whenever I can mentor someone into a relationship uh, with the world that we're in, it brings me incredible joy. Nice, nice. And Haley, let's move to you. It's hard for me to separate my relationship with plants uh, right now in my life and my relationship with work because work, as anyone who works in the field knows, it really can be all consuming in the most magnificent way. And Philoli being open to the public and being a public garden, it kind of allows me to access that relationship in a pretty public way. So my home garden, my relationship with plants is as a neglector and someone who's constantly like trying to make time for the garden. But in my work life, I feel like I connect with what Jim just spoke about, where it's really about the people and connecting people to plants and kind of nurturing that relationship. And some of those people are my coworkers. Some of those people are the public some of those people are interns that come every year. The Bailoli is complicated, right? Because we're in the middle of a ever ongoing drought. We're this very lush garden. Uh, we're constantly kind of reassessing our relationship with water and what plants we can use and that palette and what that looks like. And so it's sort of that fine line of being a caregiver and like a nurturer to these plants and then also being like full of tough love where I get to just be like no you don't cut it anymore you're out of here like you need too much water or whatever too much too much I don't have time for it and I feel like that's um that's where I'm at right now with my relationship to plants and let's move to you Kate 
I would say my primary relationship to gardens is maintenance. I guess as people, we sort of have an orientation toward development, creation, or on the other side of that, the systems of maintenance of the thing. So our work at Philoli, I think it has relationships um, between those two things, elements of both those things. Um, and we're at an interesting point right now that Jim and Haley referred to where the garden needs to evolve, um, serving the needs of people and the environment. Um, but ultimately, I think we're, we're the keepers of maintenance and maintenance, uh, it's our, it's my daily expression of my love and care for this garden and this place um, that I want to share with the people that come here. And it's, it's my commitment. And I like to think that the garden maintains me back. <laughs> Beautiful. So why don't we start again with you, Jim, and just maybe start with the mission of the house and garden, the stated objectives of the garden, and maybe a description of the garden as a space and your team as a group. So uh, Philoli's mission is to connect our rich history with a vibrant future through beauty, nature, and shared stories. A little bit of the history, Philoli was built as the country place estate uh, uh, for William and Agnes Bourne. Um, William Bourne um, and the Bourne family uh, attained their wealth through the Empire Gold Mine in Grass Valley. And, uh, and then William Bourne was uh, quite the entrepreneur and uh, was president of the Spring Valley Water Company, um, which later became the San Francisco PUC. Uh, during his life, he and his wife, Agnes, wanted to um, build a place like Faloli, and they both passed away uh, in the mid, mid-30s. Um, the property was built by the, the Roth family of the Madsen Shipping Company, and it was Mrs. Roth who, in the mid-70s, donated Faloli to the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Faloli as a public garden was, was founded as a place of white privilege. Um, it was uh, the wealthy uh, families at Faloli who are in this area who helped it to become a, a public garden were the volunteer corps for the organization in those early years when there weren't many staff and it was very much a volunteer-led organization and it was kind of static in that way for probably 20 years I, a new director started at Filoli in 2016 who came from the public garden world uh, Kara Newport and she really um, has been amazing at putting Fololi on the map um, as um, a, an open, accessible, um, welcoming place for all people. And we did that in simple ways just by expanding our hours and allowing people who um, don't work, you know, long days and don't have that much time to get to a place like this. Um, we were we were open. In, at hours when we weren't in the past. And so people could come here. I, I remember seeing moms who had picked up their kids from daycare and would come for the last hour we were open from four to five and you know not having seen that before, um, which was incredible. Uh, I think that I think that the pandemic was an incredible had 
you know, many silver linings, many horrible things happened during the pandemic, but it had many silver linings for a lot of people in their lives. It, it allowed them to reflect on what they had done with their life and maybe make some changes um, to uh, have a better life for a place like Filoli, which is open. It's an outdoor experience in, in uh, many ways. Um, when our doors opened up after the closure, uh, people discovered this place and Coincidentally, we had before the pandemic planned to have an outdoor exhibit um, by a black artist named Christine Mays. Um, she's a San Francisco artist. And really the exhibit was based on a, a style of art that we were looking for. And uh, But as we started publicizing Christine's amazing exhibit of figures done in wire um, that we had around the garden, uh, new audiences started coming to Filoli and um, they started to see that um, this is more than a garden that was built by white people, um, tended by white people. Um, and it was a place, is a place that is trying to serve the entire Bay Area, the entire country, the entire world in being a place where anybody can come. Everybody is welcome. And everybody, we hope, leaves enriched, um, healed, um, and and joyful. Um, having had a, a a beautiful experience, learning about the place, um, learning about who we are, and being in nature, whether that's a very formal cultivated garden or hiking a trail that's on the property and um, getting to see the natural world as part of their visit. This is Cultivating Place. This week we're in conversation with three members of the horticultural team at the Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. We'll be right back after a quick break for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. In this season of gratitude, I want to reiterate my gratitude to and for you. Listeners, donors, interviewees, participants, all in this experiment in civil gardening conversations, growing together across all that might divide us. As a locally based program out of a small public radio station, it is very literally true that I could not do this work without you. No matter how you support, in what form, in what amount, and what frequency, cultivating place, my work, my livelihood, my love, is made possible by your support. From time, talent, technology, taxes, and tithing, you make this work possible. From research to writing to reviewing to reveling in this magnificent facet of our communal world, you make this work possible. I know the value of every dollar. I know the fears around finances. And I know the onslaught of requests and demands on every single one of our budgets. It is never without some level of internal squeamishness that any of us asks for money. And I have long followed the respected public radio model of simply requesting listener support from those who are able and find value in that listening. So again, 
from the bottom of my heart and the seemingly endless garden love we have. Thank you for your support of Cultivating Place. And we're back now to our conversation with Jim Salyards, Director of Horticulture at Filoli Historic House and Garden, Kate Noel, Filoli's Production Gardens Manager, and Haley O'Connor, Filoli's Formal Gardens Manager. After hearing Jim's story about how it often really takes just one person, in this case Filoli's Director as of 2016, Kara Newport, to reimagine and lead not only welcoming and inviting a much broader diversity of people into any public space, but actually serving this diversity of people's needs. As we come back, we hear more about Filoli's evolving horticultural team roles and goals, starting with Kate overseeing the production gardens. As the production manager, I work with the team that tends the production spaces a team of two horticulturists cares for the cut flower garden uh, where we grow flowers for decorating inside the house and for events. And they also care for the vegetable garden, newly opened in July, though it had been historically a site where we've grown vegetables for many, many years. And Vegetables are being grown for demonstration and to share in the community and amongst the staff. And they, that team also cares is for the orchards, uh, about 10 acres of fruit trees, apples, pears, and several other fruits. And in fall, we work with Village Harvest, a local nonprofit, to donate some of the fruit. And a large portion of the fruit goes to be made into apple cider and apple butter and pear butter, which we sell in our gift shop to benefit uh, operations here at Filoli. The other side of the production team is our greenhouse team. Uh, Three horticulturists in the greenhouse oversee all the production of all the plant material that uh, is used in the garden. And they also care for our tropical plant collection and orchids that we display in the house and around the garden. And they also oversee the retail nursery. And that includes um, buying plants from many local wholesale growers uh, here on the Central Coast mostly and in Sonoma area and displaying them and selecting the best things that they can find to share with visitors that come to Filoli. For the garden, we do almost all of our own propagating. So as a visitor, when you come to Filoli, most of what you see in the perennial beds and annual plantings uh, has started as a seed many months before your visit. Let's go to, to Haley now to talk about the the formal garden uh, care and management. And then we'll go into talking about how this all integrates into to everything it is. 
so as the formal garden manager, although all of Hailoli is pretty formal, I manage the gardens around the house primarily. Basically everything that isn't used for production, our team takes care of. So that includes the rose garden, the perennial garden, uh, the sunken garden, the terrace gardens, um, the main courtyard, the olive orchard in front of the house. Kate and I are constantly uh, like drawing straws to decide who is in charge of that. For the last two years, I've been taking care of it and overseeing the renovation of it. And I hope to hand it over to production in beautiful shape, ready to um, become an active olive orchard again. Um, my team is, is comprised of six horticulturists. They're broken into groups of three and they have zones. And with the maintenance um, perspective. That's one of the ways that Filoli historically has just managed such a big property is to break it into smaller areas. Um, and that still works for us. So those teams will see, you know, oversee half of their area. One of them takes care of, um, you know, the garden, the orchard around the house, um, the sunken garden, the pool area. Another team will take care of what we call the walled garden. Uh, as well as the rose garden and the perennial garden and then our beautiful woodland garden. And it's comprised of a real mixture of people, um, some coming straight out of horticulture undergraduate to do internship at Filoli and stay on as horticulturists. Others came from Berkeley, you know, studying film to end up in the world of gardening, uh, public health, it's like a very wonderful professional or diverse professional background and it makes this team really vibrant and I feel like I'm constantly um, just like writing down really great ideas that they come up with and when Jim and I meet I'm like oh this is happening and this is what you know so and so wants to do and it's just great um, they've also you know they've all sort of dedicated their professional life at this point to horticulture and gardening. And I feel like that makes um, like all the difference in the world. So we come to work every day and everyone that we work with on our small team is like fiercely dedicated to their profession and like their passion and gardening. That level of commitment on the organization's part to keeping this garden at top level for production, for aesthetics, and therefore we hope for education as well, is remarkable. The movement of the entire focus of the garden in these last couple of years towards a couple of things that you all, you have each noted, uh, one being how do you maintain a garden like Filoli with the water reality that we have in California? How do we move it from being what it was, which was kind of a blind assumption of endless water, to a, a very cognizant and caring steward of water resources. So Jim, why don't why don't you kick us off with that? And and you know, one of the things for me that comes to mind is you have, you know, over the past five years, I will say that I have visited 
five times, maybe once a year. And one of the things that impresses me is your interpretive signage of, you know, dear garden visitor, maybe you were expecting this, but you're now seeing this and here's why. I love these signs, Jim. That's great to hear. I do too. Um, I uh, This is a huge topic. Um, it's something that I think we have conversations about every day. Um, you know, what what this garden needs to become to survive and to be uh, relevant in new ways to our audience. Uh, this garden was definitely founded to be a lush English landscape um, with no restrictions in terms of uh, how much water it will would use. Um, and then um, the big wake up calls over the years have been our droughts uh, and and what we can do to be, uh, you know, good stewards of the garden, but also to, you know, it kind of gets back to that white privilege. We, we, we can't be watering all our lawns the way that we always have and doing all the things that we've always done in terms of just pouring hundreds of thousands of gallons of water on the garden um, during the summer each day and, and, uh, and, not be off-putting to a lot of people. So uh, Fololi just recently completed its site master plan, and that was um, definitely a thread of conversation that we had as part of you know planning this garden for the next 25 years, what we can do to um, reduce water in, in places around the, the estate. And uh, the our master planning team helped us to identify uh, sections of turf that can could go offline um, in the, the next five, 10 years. And those places just be um, become uh, hardscape areas, still very functional, um, but but um, not requiring the water that uh, that a turf does. Um, but still keeping these pockets of um, well-watered areas um, some of the lawns, um, you know, that hundreds of thousands of people get to enjoy. Um, and and also looking at how we can focus some of the, the woody plants in the garden um, to be areas where there is more water used and areas where we could cut back. Um, the woodland garden that Haley spoke of earlier originally was a wild garden. And a wild garden is a space that is a more formally tended um, collection of native plants to the garden. Uh, and that later became the woodland garden because azaleas and rhododendrons and camellias were added to it. And so it now requires much more water, but that that us returning it to its original intent could be a way of reducing the water significantly in, in a section of the garden. So uh, these are the things that are, are kind of front of mind. This year, uh, the theme uh, for the, the property is uh, blue gold, the power and privilege of water. And it tells the, the story of William Bourne and, and his connection to the, the San Francisco um, Public Utility Commission um, day. And, uh, and to the, the Madsen family and the shipping company and the, their um, ships on the, on the water, um, but also the story of the indigenous people who lived on this land and their relationship to water. Um, but a big part of the story is talking about droughts and sustainability and what we can do um, with gardens uh, to make them um, 
fit the, the climate that we're in, um, mm -hmm. particularly in California and the West Coast and the Bay Area. Uh, so the display this summer um, had a lot of focus on uh, drought tolerant plants, uh, natives, mm -hmm. plants from the Mediterranean region. And there are incredible interpretive um, signs that, that talk about some of these plants. Um, but we've also been moving toward um, doing short time perennialization of some of the beds that traditionally were turned over twice a year because it's that input of water establishing plants that is really where you're just turning on the faucet and uh, leaving it on for a long time. And, and with, with more of a perennial display, um, you're, you're saving water. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're doing that wherever we, um, where, wherever it seems appropriate, um, holding on to beds. And, and frankly, some of these beds have become much better displays than they ever have been as yeah. a seasonal display, which has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, the sunken garden, um, the, 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 the focal display bed for the, for the garden is planted in succulents and plants that represent all the Mediterranean regions of the world. And uh, I think I've never been happier with a display that we've done in the sunken garden because of the textures and the colors and um, there's a, a peace and a quietness to it. Um, and at the same time, we're saving um, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water because it, it is a, a drought tolerant garden. And um, I love it so much. And I've been able to convince the organization um, that it is so good that we need to hold it on to it for another year um, because it'll only get better, you know, as, as Mediterranean plants do, um, they need time to, to fill in and grow. So it should be uh, magnificent next year. We'll still do spring containers of bulbs. Um, we are planting California native bulbs and, and uh, wildflowers in amongst the succulents to, to have a bit more color in the spring, um, but it, it should be glorious next summer. So, so learning through um, using new palettes of plants um, and then sharing that information with our guests uh, is hopefully a way that we're um, we're helping our broader community to um, garden more um, soundly and effectively and smartly. This is Cultivating Place. This week we're in conversation with three members of the horticultural team at Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. We'll be right back after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, so I had a really interesting conversation, a respectful dialogue back and forth with a wonderful listener last week. A listener of Asian descent, this person was very uncomfortable with what she felt was cultural appropriation on the part of my guest last week. This was not an easy dialogue for either of us, no doubt, but I was extremely grateful this listener trusted me with their concerns and their communication, both of which I understood to the best of my ability as a non-Asian person. This ongoing conversation and learning curve around cultural appropriation of navigating personal ownership of reparation, respect, reimagining, 
especially as felt and discerned by those from whose cultures so often feel appropriated, is so important and it will be an ongoing process in our lifetimes, for generations to come, I feel sure. There are some clear lines, but there are also some very murky ones, which often come down to personal delineation. For me, one of these lines between clear cultural appropriation and less clear, as I shared with this listener, has to do with crediting our sources and inspiration, with respectfully and joyfully uplifting, even tithing, to those sources and inspiration, while never diminishing or degrading those sources or inspiration, even in indirect, sometimes unseen ways. For this listener, your own biological ancestry lenses that further commodification or fetishizing and monetary gain were all delineators for them. When non-native peoples took the spiritual and sacred use of sacred white sage without credit or compensation, monetary or otherwise, which led not only to the commodification of this very regionally and culturally specific plant, but also the over-harvesting and endangering of it, that is a very clear line of unacceptable appropriation. How artists and students, scholars even, of other cultures teaching them, other ways of seeing and being, who go on to incorporate some of that learning into their own ways and artistry with full credit, this sits on a much murkier and age-old line. In many ways, of course, we are all appropriators of one thing or another. The land we live on here in Northern California and all of the U.S., if we are not of native descent, is stolen and appropriated. It is up to each of us to respond to these realities in all the ways we can and will. If you have thoughts, impressions, lessons to constructively share on this topic of interest to us all, you know how to reach me cultivatingplace at gmail.com or follow, tag, or DM me on Instagram. By the way, I will be attending an online program given by the Redbud Resource Group out of Northern California, led by people of Native ancestry, exploring and leading us in thinking about how we go beyond simple land acknowledgements into the real work of reparation, repair, and reimagining our futures. I'll put a link to that in this week's show notes. Keep growing, friends, growing pains and all. Happy November. And we're back now to our conversation with Jim Salyards, Director of Horticulture at the Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. He's joined by Kate Noel, Filoli's Production Gardens Manager, and Haley O'Connor, Filoli's Formal Gardens Manager.
The Fololi administration also invests in the care of the garden through the use of trusted contract experts for things like turf care and ongoing tree care with certified arborists, ensuring the longevity and health of some of the oldest specimen trees on the grounds, such as the beloved Camperdown elms. As we come back, we hear more from Haley about the evolving horticultural practices at Filoli as we move into the future. Well, perennializing the beds is a real success for water saving. And as we go forward in that discussion of having them, you know, sort of perennializing them for two or three years, um, looking at what those perennials are is the next step and kind of continuing that. We have high expectation from our guests that we'll have a big flower show in the spring, you know, 65,000 bulbs go into the ground. And I feel like that's our next uh, big conversation is, is deciding where we can reduce our spring show, but not reduce, just sort of change our spring show to be a little bit less thirsty. Uh, so the successes have been perennializing. Pollinators have been hugely successful. Um, also, I mean, they've been hugely successful from a visitor's standpoint of having beautiful beds. I think from a horticulture maintenance standpoint, they've been really exciting for us to work with just to have another level of perennial maintenance um, and gardening with, you know, plants that were um, we're cutting back, we're staking, we're sort of letting them self-sow in certain areas and have some like fun there. So our successes are many, and I think where we're going, you know, it's just continuing on this uh, trajectory. You know, the lawns that Jim spoke of, uh, our education push to just sort of help educate visitors um, and help them re- imagine what the garden space can be, um, you know, that a permeable DG area for event space is as welcoming as, you know, a lush lawn, a fescue. So we're looking at those spaces and we have a really like, I think we have a long-term vision and then we have these short-term goals. And what's hard for me, because I'm such an action-oriented person, is having to like take time and pause and realize mm -hmm. that 10 years really is a blink of the eye in this garden. Um, mm -hmm. Because I want to like, you know, take out all the lawns next year. Um, and then Jim and I <laughs> sit down and he's like, well, let's look at a 10-year plan. Let's look at, uh, you know, yeah. what we can do little bit by little bit. So it's not drastic because the drastic things we've done are noticed right away by every visitor. And even if they're only noticed by five people, you hear about them, you know, they're yep. broadcast really loudly. So yeah, I think going forward, we'll figure out some turf solutions. You know, the native planting has been really successful. Give us some examples. The sunken garden has been super successful. Well, we pulled, we pulled a perennial, um, I'll let Jim talk about the perennializing plan that he's, kind of uh, been working with, you know, but we wanted to do something this year to really um, highlight water savings. So we took an annual planting design that, uh, you know, is typically just a, just a big, you know, big show in the sunken. Um, and we have, 
you know, a native um, and drought tolerant sort of a mixture of these Mediterranean plants. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gorgeous and people have responded really well to it. So we're holding it over. Um, we have echinacea in uh, a large a large garden uh, bed called the Chart. Uh, that's this is its second year. Um, it's the Cheyenne Spirit mix, and it's just been like so colorful. People have loved it. It's actually turned into like the June July like you know showstopper. Um, our irrigation has been hugely improved. We've put drip in where we had overhead spray. We're hoping to complete, we've done about a third of the garden. We're hoping to do um, another third next year. Uh, so our boxwood is all on drip. This garden is lined in boxwood. So we have boxwood you know, frames basically on every bed that previously was just watered with overhead spray because you had annuals. So converting that into drip has been huge. It's also been pretty yeah. drastic. Like the box responded by going like, ah, I'm in shock. I'm brown. Like what's going on? Um, but I think as as it develops longer roots and it just gets used to a new water pattern, it'll respond mm -hmm. by greening and being really healthy. Um, you know, we have short feeder roots on all of our shrubs because they've just been sort of spoon fed water to the top yeah. three or four inches. Um, yeah. So we're changing that pattern by giving them deeper soaks. Speaking of your box uh, and thinking of box blight and, and some of the other issues that come up with it, is the garden, either the formal or the production garden, managed uh, organically? Is it, how do you handle um, that kind of care at a conceptual principle level? So I can answer the organics question. Uh, the garden is not an organic garden. Our fertilizers are organic. Um, we use pesticides, you know, sparingly. Uh, we use herbicides, only really on noxious weeds um, and primarily on poison oak. And it's very little, uh, especially for a garden this size. So I feel really... Um, I feel like we're responsible stewards in that way. And and Kate can talk a little bit about the greenhouses because that's a different, you know, environment and pesticides uh, have, you know, it's a different reach. Yep. So now we'll move to Kate. In, in our production areas uh, at this point, we're almost completely organic. As far as growing our vegetables and fruits, we haven't seen the need uh, to use any non-organic practices. Uh, the greenhouse is a special environment that uh, as a closed environment can be very difficult to manage pests, diseases, and viruses. Uh, but by closely monitoring pests and having some threshold for cohabitating with pests, uh, we have been able to av avoid using many pesticides. Uh, as part of the San Francisco watershed and you know, seeing all the nature and animals and insects that are on this property, we try to be really conscientious and have a gentle 
footprint on the land as far as use of anything like an herbicide or pesticide could Good. go. I, I I love to hear that. And I think, again, it's one of these transparency lines for uh, for for visitors to see that on a large scale, you can manage things with a very light input uh, footprint that I find very hopeful. Uh, and the the scope of your staff working on this, uh, I also find very hopeful. When you, each of you, think about your greatest joys or hopes for the impact of this work and how it touches or lands either with with your colleagues or with the public. Maybe there are anecdotes you could even share um, that kind of embody this greatest joy or hope of this kind of a space as we move forward in our world. And I'll start with Whichever of you has something come to mind that you'd like to share. I think I have something uh, that sort of speaks to your last question as well as this one. Uh, I have to credit our colleagues at Filoli and the Learning and Engagement Department who have helped us to become more connected with our visitors and our community. Um, an example of that is Last year, we participated in um, a movement called Welcoming Week, a, a nationwide um, event. And the learning and engagement team worked with our visitors and collected uh, information from them about crops that they grew in their lives or foods that they ate um, that they would be interested in seeing grown at Filoli. And this year when we opened the vegetable garden, we took that information and sourced seeds and grew so many beautiful, interesting crops that we've never grown before. Uh, we grew long beans and winter melons and epizote, tomatillos, mm. paprika peppers <laughs> and Persian cucumbers, all this beautiful, mm -hmm. abundant, delicious food that was such a multicultural mixture of, of different uh, traditions. And it was really special that we were able to do that. And we hope to continue doing that and, and sharing that with our visitors and having that conversation and that interchange. Yeah, I love that. And again, it, it really speaks to that visibility of of making you all visible and making your audience visible to you. Um, that's a beautiful, rich exchange. Yeah. Haley or Jim, anything come to mind? Thank you, Kate. There's always a moment when I'm out in the garden uh, that I get to hear how the garden, a plant, a display touches people. And um, I, I I find it rewarding, but I also find it hopeful for um, the future of gardens and the future of uh, the appreciation for um, places like this. Um, all all public gardens, all um, natural natural areas. Um, there's there's definitely a trend 
with younger people. Um, I'm, I mean, something that I've never seen before is a group of late teen, early 20 guys in the garden together as friends, um, enjoying the garden. And, you know, as someone who's part of a uh, an industry um, that I love so much, I mean, one of my happiest times of the year is when, uh, or times of the year is when I get together with other people at public gardens, either through the national um, gathering of folks with the American Public Garden Association, or uh, we have a local group in the Bay Area we call Bagnet Bay Area Garden Network. When we get together, um, I, I I want to see young people um, latching on to the work that we do and hopefully um, continuing the trend of wonderful horticulturists who who come to work at places like this. Um, but also, um, you know, over the years, I've seen people who have burned out in the tech world or in, in another um, line of work and have discovered that plants and, and horticulture is what they want to do. So however people get here, I want people to get to, uh, I want there to be a continuous stream of people coming to a place like this who want to help uh, keep it going and um, be the new leaders and uh, the new interpreters and, and the new um, folks who keep a place like this vibrant. Um, so it's exciting listening to the stories that a couple or a group of friends um, tell each other about their connection to plants as they move through the garden. And hopefully this place serves them and uh, makes their life better in in some way um whenever they're here hmm. Haley, anything come to mind you know i think one of the things that's so special about an estate garden is the scale of being transformed into a different and intentional um vision someone's vision and it's different than a park it, it, there's something really intimate about it and Philoli really uh, encompasses that. You feel like you're in this other world, but it's intimate. It's someone's home. It's, you know, not a home garden many people can relate to, but when you're here, you're, it's yours, you know, and that's what I find so special about watching guests and interacting with people when they come to the garden is they really they get that little piece of whatever it is they're looking for at Filoli and that, you know, they find it, whether it's nature on the nature trail or, you know, abundance in the rose garden or long vistas um, that are uninterrupted. We have, you know, we have all of that and it's, it's due to one person's privilege in being able to give it away. Right. You know, Laureline Roth, uh, just thought this garden was too beautiful to keep to herself uh, or her family in death. She wanted to share it with people. And that's such an inspiring moment to be in, you know, and also such a moment of privilege, right? Like you have enough wealth, you can give all of this away and it doesn't affect your family. So uh, for me, that's that's what I think Filoli has to offer people is you can, you know, you're you're here, and while you're here, you're in the garden, and you're completely um, like transported into this vision of beauty and and splendor, and abundance. Um, and I think we celebrate abundance here in a natural 
uh, like natural abundance in a really beautiful way that mm. doesn't feel um, it doesn't feel like we're celebrating the privilege. You know, it's like we're celebrating the natural abundance and the beauty that this garden uh, holds. Beautiful. I had one thing, but I something that I was thinking about as we were talking about Philoli and Philoli evolving and Philoli's history. Uh, Philoli's history is, is something that we're departing from in many ways. And it's also in many ways one of our core strengths. Um, since I've been working here at Philoli, I've been work I've worked with gardeners that have been gardening here for 30 years. And there was gardeners before them and gardeners before them, and gardeners before them. And these gardeners, they have this really special, specific, that place-based knowledge, observing this place, uh, experimenting over time. And now we have the communal knowledge, like a horticultural knowledge, environmental knowledge, practical knowledge that it's been developed and it's passed down. So I think as horticulturists, um, we all are trying to steward and grow this, this understanding, this knowledge of uh, the, the place, the animals, the, the practices, the soil, the seasons. Um, as horticulturists, we're observing what we're doing. Uh, we're noting what we're doing. We're sharing it. And a lot of the knowledge is, it's in our practices. It's in the choreography. So if you're working here for 30 years, 10 years, three months, even if you're visiting for the day, uh, I think you're part of preserving these practices and this knowledge and mm. as I guess as we're evolving and we're adapting the garden so that we can make substantial changes to uh, reduce our use of resources and to adapt our planting language and our uh, operations so that we're embracing uh, the diverse cultures of the Bay Area and uh, our, our changing climate, the history that we have and this knowledge that is a long-term knowledge, I think is really our foundation that is hopefully going to make us successful in this as, mm -hmm. as we move forward and, and embrace the future. Beautiful. Thank you all very much for being guests on the program today. It has been a great pleasure to speak with you and hear about your experience and um, forward progress and growth uh, and beautiful maintenance there at Filoli. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your podcast. Filoli 
is a historic housing garden in Woodside, California, situated on the unceded ancestral lands of the Rameitush Ohlone. The estate includes 654 acres of wildland along California's coastal range and 16 acres of cultivated gardens open to the public. Originally built as a private residence in 1917, Filoli was open to the public in 1975 as a nonprofit organization and site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Jim Salyards is the director of the garden at Filoli, Kate Noel is the production gardens manager, and Haley O'Connor is Filoli's formal gardens manager. Speaking of plants and place in this garden moment, this week, an ode to zinnias. Because in front of the blessed rain and cold weather in our forecast, this past weekend I harvested and cut back the generous bed of zinnias I had seeded in trays early last spring, in which we, mostly John, have tended, and both of us have enjoyed watching them grow over six feet tall. Although most sources say they grow to four feet, ours were definitely closing in on six feet. We also enjoyed the colorful profusion of blooms all summer. As I picked the last of them to make way for winter crops and to save seed before the dampness set in, Buckeye butterflies, pipe vine butterflies, a California sister butterfly, honeybees, hoverflies, and others nectared at the blooms as I worked. And I did keep apologizing to them for the harvest, but knew there were other fall blooms, especially among the salvias, for these insects to forage at as well. Zinnias, according to Purdue University's Eric Grissel, author of The History of the Zinnia, Flower for the Ages, there are about two dozen recognized name species, but a relative few have become garden standards. All species of the genus Zinnia have a natural center of diversity in Mexico, spreading a bit farther to the north in the western United States and to the south as far as northern and western South America. Zinnias naturally originated in these regions of the New World regardless of where they now occur. About half the known zinnia species are hardy perennials, appearing as small shrubs in some cases. As Grizel writes, these forms remain poorly known among gardeners, even keen gardeners. It's the annual sorts that are generally referred to as garden zinnias, and annual garden zinnias have been popular since the early 1800s in North America and earlier in Europe. But the historical origin of the flower purports to date back much earlier, to the time of the Aztecs. According to legend, species of zinnia have been known and grown there from the time of the Montezumas, from the early 1500s to the present. It is generally assumed that the typical zinnia grown in those times is what we today call a garden zinnia, but it would have originated in a much different form. This zinnia is given the Latin scientific name Zinnia elegans, the elegant zinnia. My paternal grandfather loved his easy annual summer flowers, including zinnias, and they are gratifyingly easy to sow from seed. The seed themselves remind me of elegantly drawn eyelashes. 
This past spring, in early March, I started a large selection of seed sourced from Renee's, Nichols, and Floret. Some tall and large flowered, some small and multiflora, some simply petaled, some wildly double, all colorful. State Fair, California Giants Mix, California Giants Violet Queen, Persian Carpet, Oklahoma Mix, Benary's Giant Series Mix, and most likely a few more. Zinnias take between 3 and 14 days to germinate, and while some sources indicate they are sensitive to transplanting, my 50 or more plants did beautifully. I potted on my seedlings into 4-inch pots when their roots were poking out of the bottom of the seed trays, and then once they had outgrown their four-inch pots, I planted them out in the garden once daytime temperatures were steadily warm. In the garden, zinnias like full sun, yes, even here in Northern California. They also like rich soil with good drainage, and ours required a medium amount of water daily for us in the height of summer heat once they were established. For me, the whole point of planting them was to cut them, and that kept them blooming all summer long as well, until I let a few of them go to seed. Once gone to seed, the seed, kept dry and cool, is also very easy to save for next season. My favorite was a large, flowered, nuanced, orange, burnishing to pink in the center. I will be dreaming of this cheerful summer color at seeding time again next spring. Join us again next week when we continue in a similar thread in conversation with Harvard University's William Friedman, Arnold Professor of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology and Director of the Arnold Arboretum, this year celebrating its sesquicentennial. Trust me, it will be an organismic conversation. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.